This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Our third and final episode of this podcast takeover series focuses on the evolution of education online. In the first half of the episode, I joined Cal Poly students Emily Bowden and Erin Jeffs for an interview with Dr. Shira Lee Katz, head of content strategy at Coursera, to think about the meaning and the consequences of moving education online. In the second half of the episode, Erin and Emily talk about their own experiences of online courses as we get real about what we gain and what we lose about the college experience in our new virtual reality. Dr. Shira Lee Katz is head of content strategy at Coursera, a leading online learning platform. She's interested in the forms of education that serve a diverse array of people and learning styles. Her team is the company's forward-looking radar, using complex data signals to identify hot topics and catalyze new content formats. Before Coursera, Shira was a strategic lead for Netflix Kids, where she focused on product innovation. Prior to that, she was the Senior Director of Education at Common Sense Media, where she launched their EdTech and Consumer Review channels and created their K-12 Digital Citizenship Curriculum. Shira's academic roots include a bachelor's from the University of Michigan and a doctorate from the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Hi, Shira. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Deva. I'm glad to be here. I'm going to stay silent for the majority of this, I hope, if I can help myself, and turn the mic over to Emily Bowden and Erin Jeffs. Hi, Shira. Thank you so much for being here. So you have a background in English literature and a doctorate in human development and psychology. What led you to want to work with Coursera? What is the link there for you? Well, there are so many things, I would say, that made me want to come to Coursera and it also makes me reflect on many jobs that I've had, and there are these reoccurring themes. If you ask about English majors, there are these themes that come up again and again and again in books. And I think with jobs and careers, it's similar. Even though you think you're going to a different job, it's kind of the same job, and you gravitate towards similar things. So to be specific, I really, really like non-traditional forms of learning and serving different types of learners, especially ones who might not have access to education. I think everyone at Coursera, myself included, is here very much for the mission of opening up access to people around the world who might not be able to go to school otherwise. That's, I think, number one. Two, I have always been enamored of these sort of tech-centered or non-traditional learning styles. I have many people in my family who have learning differences and may not learn in the most traditional ways. So I think accommodating approaches to different types of people is really important. And that's another reason why I like Coursera and why I've liked sort of tech-centered education in many ways. Coursera is a cutting edge company. And I think every place that I've worked has been quite cutting edge. People are nice. The culture is good. My manager is awesome. And then tying into this podcast, I feel like I'm doing something good and ethical for the world by mere future of being in the learning space. and. Of course, this goes back to the idea of access, because the more you can provide for more people who might not have access otherwise, the better, I think. I will also say that jobs are like reactions to the job before and the job before that. So I have this belief that you should have complementary experiences in your life that all add up to something that's very comprehensive. So one of my first jobs out of grad school was a nonprofit called Common Sense Media, And then the next job was something, a household name company called Netflix, and then now Coursera. And I'd say it's like Goldilocks. So if Common Sense was the mighty but small nonprofit, then Netflix was sort of the household name for profit. And now, to my mind, I think Coursera is more medium-sized, but it's this growth startup. So it's like a rocket ship right now. It's really exciting to be part of Coursera. But I think with those three institutions, I've gotten such a 
diverse array of experience and Before variety. we continue with the rest of the conversation, could you tell us what exactly is Coursera? Coursera is, I would say, a leading online platform for higher ed. There are more than 200 of the world's top universities and companies who partner with us. They produce something called specializations, which are basically courses strung together to make something bigger. We create projects, which are these very sort of skill-based hands-on learning experiences, certificates that can help certify you in a particular set of skills that's like widely recognized to be important, and then degrees. So we kind of run the gamut of I would say content and credentials for learners. And then we have 70 million learners from around the world, which is very exciting. You have university students, you have people who are at companies who are taking these. We work with 2,900 companies through our enterprise platform, and they really use it to help transform their talents, help employees achieve all kinds of career goals, upskill, reskill, um, even change departments. So it's pretty exciting to serve both that university audience and I thought companies. what you said about Coursera kind of being different and being able to adapt to other learning styles is really interesting because the two of us, Emily and myself, are college students undergoing education in what is probably still defined as traditional courses in a learning environment. So could you elaborate more on what Coursera does differently? What was the problem Coursera was trying to solve with their product? One thing that's important to know is that the average age of our learners on Coursera is probably like early 30s. So while I imagine you two are maybe, I don't know, 19 or 20 because you're in college. Are you in college? Yeah, we're both undergraduate students. Both of us are 21. Imagine being 10 years older and in a job already. You know, you're thinking about like, how do I take courses when my kids are trying to go down or when I can sneak a few minutes away or those kinds of things are a lot of the questions that people on our platform are trying to answer. I would say one of the biggest innovations for working people or, or for college age students is like, how can I do learning that's hands-on? And so one of my favorite innovations so far has been something called guided projects. And it really is this idea that you can do something alongside an instructor where they give you a skill to build and they've identified what that skill is. And then they have like maybe a tool that they want to use to help teach you that skill. And side by side, you're not just mimicking them, but you're trying to learn what they're doing by watching. And then you're doing your own version of it too. So it's a very much a hands-on way to learn. And I like that very much. It's part of our Coursera Labs platform which has all kinds of innovative, I would say, more interactive components. Do you think there are differences between virtual and in-person learning, either in process or in the outcome? And if so, what are they? So I think yes and no, meaning there's some core things that are very similar between virtual and in-person learning. And of course, there's some things that are different. And I would say that online learning enables a lot of flexibility. So with your schedule in particular, you don't have to be at the computer at a particular time to hear someone live always. I mean, there are some live elements of it too, of course, but if you can take things on your own time, it really gives people flexibility, especially if they're working a job during the day. I think that asynchronous part is really comforting to some people. And so I would say that's one of the main benefits. Like I said, some of the outcomes for both in-person and online learning can be the same, but the learning really does need to be designed for that particular format. So I think simply putting lectures online does not work. It's not a good form of learning or the best form of learning. In my humble opinion, I think some sort of interactivity and skills-based learning is really helpful and useful. There are also things that you probably lose online. I think for some people, for sure, not having any in-person, like in the same room learning can feel alienating. So I wouldn't say, oh yes, online learning is the answer for everyone, but for some people it's helpful. And actually for some people it's freeing. I've talked to people who felt like they sat in classes and they never said one thing for a whole year. And then they said with online learning, because I think there's a screen between them and their audience, let's say, they actually feel less inhibited and they say more, they type more, all those things. I think there's also an expectation in virtual learning that you are participating more through typing and through the things that you contribute online and online artifacts as, as well. So for the people who like to do that, who like to put all the comments in the chat and who like to work that way, I think it's very, very, and very free. I think right now it's critical to talk about this move towards 
online learning, particularly in this moment where the context of the pandemic is creating a move towards online learning, like I said before. With the pandemic forcing most students to switch to a virtual learning format, we've been experimenting with the idea that learning can happen virtually. Do you see the online learning landscape changing in the next few years? Will this surge of virtual learning brought on by the pandemic last? I think there is no doubt. That's my personal view. Nothing will ever be the same. So right now at Coursera, for example, I think we are working remotely until January 2022. And then after that, I imagine that not everyone will go in five days a week. And I don't think we're that different than many workplaces right now. So even when people go back or quote, go back after the pandemic, I think they're going back for some number of days during the week. People hate their commute so much. And I think, you know, there's like a correlation between commute and like, you know, heart attacks and all this stuff. Like, it's not good for you to sit in a car for so long. So it's probably healthier for us to not have to commute so long, especially in the Bay Area where commutes can be very, very long. And then I think people are moving away from big cities, from tech centers. People are moving out into the suburbs, more rural communities. I think they're looking for more affordable options. So I think even where people live as compared to where they work is changing. And then I think, you know, of course, there's convergence in California and the West Coast with forest fires as well. A lot of the tech hubs as we know them, I think will disperse a little bit more. Like, you know, the West Coast may not be as an attractive place to be in some number of years. So there is no doubt things are changing. I think in-person learning will absolutely still happen, especially for college age kids, because the social interactions in dorms especially can be such an attractive part. I mean, that was so much fun. (laughs) I look back on it and I'm like, oh man, I miss it. But at the same time, I do think schools, colleges are going to incorporate much more of a hybrid approach. So more flipped classroom, more partnerships with places like Coursera. I mean, already we're seeing such a surge in partnerships with universities and companies. It's hard to imagine that won't continue. But when we get a vaccine for COVID, I think at in-person institutions, there will be a hunger to be in-person for some things. So I think of things like acting, music, medicine, things that are more physical I think they might go back more to the way they are now because those labs, like the physical labs are very important and they're hard to replicate virtually. That said, I've seen some really interesting augmented reality demos. Like someone came in and I was doing virtual surgery on someone where I had to like, you know, saw someone in half their, like their knee or I'm like, oh gosh, I failed on this. And it was, you know, the haptics were not good, (laughs) but I think that's so fascinating to think of how you can recreate some of these experiences virtually, even if they may be, I would say, objectively subpar. Sure. I wanted to ask you a question from the educator side of things, because one of the things that comes up in our conversations around the future of education from the perspective of academia is what role will there be for professors and what role and continued employment will there be for professors, right? And you have a background in going in and getting your doctorate yourself. And probably you, like I did, had the experience of the fright of not knowing whether there was a job available for you with a PhD at the end of pursuing what for me was 10 years of master's degrees and a doctorate at the end of it. And I think that some people on the professional side of academia are increasingly concerned that things like tenure track jobs, job stability, employment, the continuity of departments with a robust set of expertise might be dismantled as you might say the administrative or the corporate side takes over education and kind of commoditizes it into something that can be packaged in a way and doesn't require the kind of expertise that it now does with the kind of continuity in those departments. Are you concerned about that? Is that a conversation that happens on your side of things? I mean, some people would view this as disruption of an industry, (laughs) Uh, something that in the past couple of years has gotten a, a lot of pushback. How do those conversations look on your side? I think there will always be as much need for learning in the future as there is now, as there was in the past. I don't think the demand is going to change. I really don't. That said, I think your point about what that demand looks like and how teachers, professors, instructors, whoever they are, are asked 
to meet that demand might look different. But I don't think it's because of Coursera. I think it's because the world is changing. I think people are expected to be more career oriented earlier. I think there's more pressure on younger and younger people to think about the future, their future, um, especially with the past recession, especially with the current, I think, what will be a recession or depression even. I think as our generation has the realization that like, no, I actually have to think very clearly about my future, even if I'm not sure exactly what I want to do, teachers are going to play a crucial role. So where we do see a lot of people from universities making a lot of inroads, and I say people from universities, so it can be professors, it can be instructors, it can be instructional designers, a variety of people from universities, is that anything that has application to the real world and to sort of experiential learning is appealing to kids more and more and to our learners. So I think that maybe the distinction is, I think we're seeing a big hunger for lots of hands-on, realistic, real-life knowledge building, but then also experience. And that may fly in the face of some people who think of academia in a and certain Just a follow-up question, and I'll turn it back to Erin and Emily. You know, real-life experience and courses that apply to what you called real life are so important. I think that with college costs and what it costs right now and students, particularly students who come from low income communities being required to take on an enormous amount of debt in order to pursue these degrees. I think that there is a increasing question about how departments can justify learning for learning's own sake. So I understand that from the other perspective you know, I want to say, especially as a professor of English literature, where my topic and my area and the culture that I propose is interesting, I want to say study because it's interesting, learn from it because it's a, got a mystery and it doesn't have to have an end product at the end of it to be interesting and fun and worthy of learning. So where do you see that kind of educational ends fitting in to what you just proposed as kind of a more uh, career-driven purpose and ends-oriented form of learning. So I would say it, it is not actually Coursera's view that learning is about, you know, your end goal of career. I just think when we talk to many of our learners, that's, you know, one of their aims, in part because they want to make sure they have a solid job and they can support themselves. However, we also support the idea that learning is important for learning's sake. So we have so many passionate learners on our platform who are here simply out of curiosity and because they just want to drink in knowledge. So we have, for example, that contact tracing course. I think half the people were there because they're like, what is this? It's so fascinating. It's like a new mystery. You know, I'm like a sleuth in this pandemic. And I thought that was so cool. We have a course called the science of well-being. And of course, that's, I guess that's more about your the well-being of yourself, but you're not learning that to get a job. You're learning that because you're fascinated by the topic and maybe you want to also you know, self-soothe and calm yourself. But there are so many courses on Coursera that don't have the express aim of getting you a job. So I think that's important to know too, is that we're really trying to honor a spectrum of purposes in coming to the platform. I really like that idea of having the ability to learn just because you want to learn more about something. And university isn't always the best place to do that because you're there to hopefully get a degree that helps hopefully gets you a job in the future. I think that virtual education is going to be a great way for people to learn just to learn, which kind of leads me to my question that I wanted to ask about how virtual education might offer more access to opportunities that university doesn't necessarily offer. Education in the in-person university context is limited by who and how many it can serve. And there's an argument that has gained increasing traction that makes the case that online courses open up these ideas to broader groups of people, that they undo some of the structures of hierarchy around who and how many have access to ideas. What is the relationship between virtual education and inclusion and accessibility? And do you think that broadening access to ideas and of course, intellectual property is unequivocally good. I would come back to Coursera's mission here, which is to enable really anyone anywhere to have access to high quality education. So right now, as I said before, we have 70 million learners from around the world who come to Coursera and they really want to learn 
skills of the future and whatever topic they want just because, because they think it's fun and they're excited about it. I think really online learning enables us to reach many learners around the world. And I think the world is the key thing here. When you look in a university, let's say, I won't take a particular university, but let's say you're looking at a state school, the majority of learners will come with, you know, from the radius of that state and let's say a few states beyond. And when you think about an online learning platform like Coursera, the majority of our learners are outside of the U.S. And that stat is staggering to me. I didn't realize that before I came here. But we hear learner stories of people every week in our sort of all hands meeting. And these are people who took courses on Coursera or, you know, were interested in a new job because of Coursera or who got a, a different kind of job because of Coursera, because of content that they did on Coursera. So I can think of like a female engineer that we heard of who in her home country was not allowed by her family to go to school. So kind of covertly, she went to Coursera and she basically got a degree in computer engineering and now has a job that she never would have had. I think, you know, we have a lot of programs for people who are unemployed or underemployed, people who have lost their job because of the pandemic and they just need a fresh start. But these are often people too who had more physical jobs or jobs that didn't have a tech or data component. And that's something that really distinguishes you right now. Any kind of skills that are tech-based or data-based have a premium on them right now. So coming to us for those kinds of skills right now is really helping people who might not have before Inequality and issues surrounding diversity, equity, inclusion can also be a concern when discussing higher education. So do you think anything needs to be done in the educational landscape? What is Coursera doing to address DEI issues? Yes, I think almost any institution in the whole world should be thinking about this right now and always. (laughs) Let's just start there. (laughs) So at Coursera, We believe that learning is a source of human progress um, and really a force to promote empathy and understanding. And so I think from here, we really believe that we have a unique position to inform and educate. For example, we have a collection of courses that really helps broaden the understanding of racism, bias, and social justice. And I'm really excited. We are actively working with universities and companies right now to think about what kinds of things we could have in, I would say, areas like knowledge building, for example, poor, great people of color, and especially BIPOC people who have moved our world forward through innovation and all kinds of things, and also what are the barriers that they have faced. We are thinking about communication, like how do you relate to people who have a different point of view as you, and how do you persuade people? What are the best techniques in general? How can people take social action? We're thinking a lot about like action, especially with the upcoming election in the U.S. We, of course, are thinking about equity in the workplace and thinking about how you systematically build those practices into your talent team and then throughout the company about how to create equity in the workforce is extremely important at a company. And then a subject near and dear to my heart, because I've done a lot with K-12, is thinking about the next generation. So how do we equip teachers and parents with information and tools and resources to really help bring kids up in the way that I think is most socially just, I'll put it that way. So some specific things, I'll I'll tell you about some specific programs we're running. So one, we're providing financial support to our partners to create new courses that can amplify the voices of faculty who have researched racial discrimination and social justice. We are hosting those courses on Coursera and it will allow millions of people to learn and be inspired, I would say, to transform their communities. We are sourcing and promoting content from authors from underrepresented groups. So we're actively doing that right now. I would say that we are sourcing and promoting content with the goal of better meeting the needs of Black learners and small business owners. And then we're also continuing engagement with some of the historically Black colleges and universities. So we hope to enter into more of those partnerships soon. And then Internally, we're intensifying our efforts to hire and retain and, of course, grow a more diverse workforce. So a goal of the Cal Poly Ethical Technology Center is to revolutionize the way we train tech workers. This is something that the two of us are really passionate about, considering both of our future careers will ultimately be in the tech field. I noticed Coursera has a certified ethical emerging technologist specialization. How did the company decide to offer this course and who typically takes it? So, you know, I don't know that course 
specifically, but what I can say is that I'm certain it's part of our broader effort that I just talked about around diversity, inclusion, and belonging, and that we are thinking more and more about the intersection of ethics and all kinds of topics. I think it probably addresses things like bias and algorithms, fake news, deep fakes, anything related to social media and how the algorithms behind social media can impact what you see, how you view the world. And so if I were to like, let's say, drill down into what may or may not be in this particular specialization, but I think would be related, I think about algorithms. We know that they're really trained on models that usually come from like the dominant data set. And oftentimes that's the dominant voice or the dominant, let's say, race or the dominant gender, whoever it is. And so I think, for example, voices of minorities or dissenters might be suppressed. And I think people say, well, that's just what the algorithm does. But I think a course would have you question whether we should let the algorithms just do their thing or whether we should do things to really think about the fairness of them in the first place. So that's one. Two, I think metrics are really important. So for example, a lot of companies have their major metric is like, how much has your user or learner interacted with this content? How much have they watched? And if you think about TV and movies, and then you think about kids, you know, if you're thinking about any entertainment company, like, you know, they want kids to watch as much TV as possible, as many movies as possible. That's just like how they measure their success. And of course, this can go against healthy viewing standards. We know that under the age of two, they'd say like, you know, it's not really good to have kids watching TV at all or screens. So then when you get to age three, age four, you start watching content. Well, I think a lot of the companies, uh, entertainment companies in particular are made so that there are so many more carrots for watching more. And then another area I would say is merchandising. So how do you decide what to show or who to show in pictures through marketing, through in-product merchandising? What are the faces people are seeing? What are the economic backgrounds of the people are seeing? How are things labeled? Does it say that a particular product is for a certain group? And are you accounting for people who have different learning styles or who may not see as well or who may be deaf or blind? Those kinds of things are really important. And I think, you know, the answer to a lot of this is to more actively teach digital citizenship. This is where I reach back into my first job out of grad school, as I think I said before, at Common Sense Media, where we really, really work with kids to think about news literacy and privacy and being participants in an online community and like what that means, what kind of responsibility you have with that power. I really wanted to press you on that. That was something that jumped out to me when I read your bio, you talked about this being your first job out of grad school. I wanted to ask you how you got that job. What compelled you to take that job? What compelled them to give you that job? And what a digital citizenship curriculum looks like. Also, what is it responding to? I have no idea what compelled them to hire, hire me. <laughs> <laughs> to this day, I'll start there. But uh, in grad school, my doctorate was on the creative process and actually had nothing to do with media at all. But I spent a lot of time taking courses and I think we called it TFing, teaching fellow courses on informal media and its impact. So I studied with an amazing professor named Joe Blatt. He's one of my favorite guys and academics to this day. And I think I was a TF for his class on Sesame Street, where we had real executive from Sesame Street coming in and talking to us about how they made their episodes. And they encouraged us to use the quarter to pitch a concept to them that was research-based. I think the theme was health or something like that. In any case, this was grad school. And I just became enamored of the intersection of, I think, goodness and tech and learning. And I think that's why at Common Sense, they took me. Now, they didn't take me initially. I remember I was hired like on a, you know, contractor basis because, you know, you just have a doctorate, but you don't have as much experience in the world. And so they're like, ah, we'll just take you as a contractor. And then a few months in, I'm like, I need a job. I really need a job. And I think I proved myself to them. I really did. So that was an exciting moment when I negotiated my salary and all that kind of stuff. That's how I ended up there. And then... I think you had another question. I did. I wanted to really know what digital citizenship is as a concept, as a new need for a thing to teach, where it comes from, what it's responding to. It really acknowledges that there are all these sort of ethical tensions because of the move from not being online to online. And I say the move because 
a lot of people who are teaching, at least in the year 2010, did not grow up as digital natives. And the kids they were teaching, some did, some didn't, you know, depends on the year they were born. But I think no matter what, there were all these ethical tensions that we were seeing. And we we're seeing it in research. We were working with Howard Gardner's group from Project Zero, and he's at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. And they had identified some of the biggest ethical tensions. So some of those had to do with balance, like how much to watch and who monitored that. And how do you know how much is too much? Then there was all the stuff on privacy and how much to share and how much not to share. And what was the code of sharing? Incidentally, I think teens have a very complex code when it comes to privacy, but it's a different code than older generations. So it's confusing a lot to, to old people like me sometimes what is shared and what is not. So we talked a lot about digital footprints, the idea of identity and who you are online and how much you could press the boundaries of who you are and who you wanted to be was a big question we really investigated. So people, I think, were more daring online and they might wear different clothes and they might even try in different personas online, but you go too far and then some people were misrepresenting themselves, at least to their peers. And I think that felt like it was a um, disingenuous form of representation. So that was a, an area we really sort of investigated community, like how to build community through things like fan fiction and activism online and finding just your social network. But then the flip side is cyberbullying and digital drama and hate speech and all those things that you do when you're anonymous. And then of course, news and media literacy. So there were like these ethical tensions and we turned it into curriculum that became wildly popular for K-12. And so I think just teaching about those things is important. Well, thank you, Shira. I want to reserve time in this conversation to talk with Erin and Emily about our collective experiences, learning and teaching online. So Erin and Emily, you have now had three quarters of experience learning online. Dr. Katz was very enthusiastic about and was a big advocate for learning online. She proposed a lot of exciting possibilities about what is now newly available for uh, learning online. And I wanted to hear from you what you thought of the transition. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I would much rather be in person, but I think there has been some benefits to learning online. One of my favorite things is when we do have an asynchronous class is I'm really able to go at my own pace. I get the lectures done before an upcoming midterm or final, but what I really appreciate is that I can pause and really take my time going through the lecture. I feel like I understand the material on the first go around as opposed to having to review it later. Yeah, and I absolutely agree with that. That is certainly one benefit of virtual learning is that you get to sort of move at your own pace. Um, the biggest downside about virtual learning is the lack of hands-on experience, especially for a student at Cal Poly where the motto is learn by doing and we do like really practice that, especially being a microbiology major. I can't uh, grow bacterial plates in my mom's kitchen. That's not something that she would be okay with me doing. So I kind of lose that part of the experience, which is hard because research is one of the things I love most about school. Well, let me ask a question. From the perspective of somebody teaching these classes, I kind of feel like some of the basic assumptions and some of the basic expectations of learning um, really are no longer there. I think that there's a tremendous amount that we gain from sitting in the same room as one another. You know, there's been a lot of research that shows that when human beings sit in a room together, even if they're working individually, there's a collective ability to grasp onto and maybe even subconsciously work quicker, more in depth, just by being in the same room. I, I hear conversations from students and certainly from parents asking whether or not the price of online education, which is already quite hefty, is worth it if students are going to be learning essentially from pre-recorded lectures or remotely without the kinds of contact that many people, I think, feel that they're, 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 for lack of a better word, paying for, for online education. What do you guys think? Yeah, I think it's frustrating for a lot of people when you see that there are similar online courses to what you're taking at university for what you're paying for offered 
free on other online platforms. Uh, the question arises like, why don't I just teach myself? Why don't I read a book? Why don't I go on YouTube and learn this? Um, I feel like in that way, a lot of students are frustrated that they're paying this much for something that they could be getting uh, absolutely for free. Oh yeah, I totally agree. And I've actually had some professors that instead of assigning a pre-recorded lecture done by them, they have instead referred us to YouTube videos that we could have watched for free anyway. Um, and so that's been a little bit frustrating as well, that I'm not even, you know, learning from the professor. In terms of your learning, and this I'm really curious about, do you feel like you walk away from a class with the kind of in-depth knowledge that you might in another context? I mean, in and of apart from any ability to do the kinds of hands-on labs, do you feel like after taking a class where the instruction happens virtually, you walk away with that kind of enriched understanding of a topic? Or do you feel like in some ways you're kind of learning light? I think it really depends. I think there's been multiple classes where I feel like I was able to grasp the concepts, maybe not so much the application in a lab setting, but at least the theoretical concepts really, really well. Um, and I think a lot of it had to come from self-motivation and self-studying and come from really dedicating my time to it, uh, probably more so than if I had sat in person. So I think in that regard, I understand concepts just as well, if not better. But in terms of actually applying it and, you know, understanding a laboratory procedure, I would say, kind of like you said, I'm learning light. Now, here's a question about the nature of conversations that are happening outside of the classroom. I understand, at least from, from my college experience back when dinosaurs roamed the earth, a lot of what I understood to be the college experience, and in fact, a lot of what I look back on and understand as learning, are the conversations that happened outside of the classroom, the moments of interaction where students talked about what we had learned in class, went over material, enriched those understandings, applied them to things that we were thinking and doing um, in, in very real time. What do you think will happen to those conversations? Do you miss them? I absolutely miss them. Um, my major is very small, so I have most of my classes with the same small group of students. And it's always been nice to walk out of lab or walk out of lecture and be able to sort of just compare notes, like right on the spot, talk about what we thought was cool or weird or interesting from the lecture we just had. Um, it's definitely something I miss a lot. I had my first in-person lab yesterday on campus, actually. And I was a little bit nervous because it had been so long since I'd met like brand new people. And I was a little nervous about like, how is my small talk? Do I know how to talk to new people about things? And it was just so nice like getting in there and spending about two hours with people who are interested in the same scientific topics that I'm interested in and just getting to sort of hash it out and see what they want to do in the future and what kind of goals they have. And that just that two hours was so, so nice to have getting to talk to my peers again. I did not realize that that's something I missed so much, but I really do. I totally agree. And What's been hard for me, I don't actually have any in-person labs uh, this quarter. And as a animal science major, I really, really miss talking with other people about my research. From that perspective, it's also been really hard. I also lived alone during the summer. My roommate was gone and that got very lonely and was pretty isolating as well. I know I miss contact with my peers and friends. Now, I'm aware of the kinds of conversations that are happening among faculty about our frustrations uh, and, and what we feel that we have lost and sometimes occasionally what we've gained in online education. But I'm curious about the conversations that are going on among students. If I could be a fly on the wall for a conversation between students at Cal Poly, assuming that you guys have conversations still, uh, what would I hear? I think you would hear a lot of frustration 
about the situation. It's not necessarily directed at any professors or at the university. I just think it's a really, really hard situation we're all in. And so I think there's a lot of frustration and anger directed towards that. I think you will also hear a lot of burnout. I think it's really, really exhausting to kind of just be at your desk all day. I think, honestly, another thing you would hear is a lot of humor about what's going on. Oh, totally. Like coping humor. A lot of us are texting back and forth, joking about how, like, and it's horrible, but joking about how there's a virus, so I can't go inside, but there's a fire, so I can't go outside. So let me just, like, astral project myself to class today. Like, (laughs) stuff like that. I think students understand that for right now, this is what we are dealing with. It will not last forever, hopefully. And when it's over, we can push forward and go back to not necessarily what we had before, but some type of new normal. So I want to bring two conversations together that I see happening simultaneously. On the one hand, there's a conversation that you're talking about with this kind of hope toward the future where this will be finally over, we'll be able to go back to classes as they were. On the faculty side, there's a lot of fear and anxiety that somehow administrators and kind of the more capitalist forces that see this moment as a very lucrative opportunity to cut staff, to cut costs in buildings and to cut uh, operational costs would leverage this moment into a proposed entire move online. Now, this is very frightening to faculty whose livelihoods are tied to a kind of enduring model of meeting in person. Not only have we been trained to give that kind of instruction, many of us have gone into this profession because meeting with students in person and engaging with bright, brilliant, thoughtful, engaged students is something that's tremendously meaningful to us. But we also see you know, uh, funding lines for hiring tenure who are able to have abilities and expertise in multiple areas cut as an administrator says, why not just refer them to a YouTube video for this uh, kind of instruction or about this subject? Um, So between these conversations, I think that there's a lot of will toward, (laughs) for for self-sustenance, moving back to in-person classes. Now, my personal belief is that the only thing that will save in-person classes is the collective demand by students for them and the collective rejection of online education. Do you see students at Cal Poly um, fully rejecting uh, online turn and demanding a return to in-person instruction? Definitely. I can't imagine any Cal Poly student saying they prefer online learning to in-person learning. I think right now we're all understanding of the pandemic we're in and we're all doing our part to stop the spread. And we see this as a very necessary precaution. But I can't imagine, especially at a university whose core is learned by doing, any student saying that they prefer this method or would want to come to this university for an online or exclusively online experience um, rather than an in-person one. Emily, what do you think? I don't believe that students necessarily feel like they have the power in this situation. Our concerns have been voiced uh, several times over. I know most of us are pretty upset that we Maybe we understand that we have to pay tuition. Full price seems a little steep, but the fact that we have to continue paying fees for things that are on campus that we aren't even able to use is frustrating. And we voice those concerns. I've seen several petitions around trying to get students to sign, trying to tell the administration, we do not want to pay for these things that we don't get to use. It doesn't seem just. And I don't know if students could potentially make a sort of movement that just demands in-person classes. I don't know how well the administration would respond to that, whether it's because they're not 
really the ones that get to make the decisions because it's left to the CSU chancellor's office or if it's because there could be some other sort of consequence, I'm not sure. I just don't believe that the students see themselves as having the power to demand in-person classes. And honestly, maybe that's something that could change. If that idea got out there, then I think a lot of students would push for that because I will tell you learning online this long has just not been an effective method to learn new things. So let me ask you a question because this is on some level a conversation that I have over and over again with my fellow faculty members. You know, on the one hand, there seems to be an idea that what students paying are paying for is the opportunity to learn. On the other hand, there seems to be some maybe more cynical members of our faculty who believe that what students are paying for is the degree or the credential that will then allow them to market themselves or to do other things. Now, I'm going to give you a hypothetical here, and I want to hear what you think of this hypothetical. I mean, say that Cal Poly could run on a Coursera method and deliver content to you online for a reduced price and allow you to obtain a Cal Poly degree. You would be paying less. You would get the same degree. So in that sense, there might be a cost benefit to that form of education. Would you trade the learning element for the reduced price credentialing opportunity? Or is there something fundamental for you as students about the opportunity to learn that is worth paying more for? I absolutely believe that if Cal Poly offered that online curriculum that got me the exact same degree, I still don't think it would be worth it because I didn't necessarily come to Cal Poly just to get a bachelor's degree. I came because I was super passionate about bacteria and I wanted to be able to work with them hands-on, find whatever I was passionate about, like get in the lab and get dirty. Me getting my degree online is not necessarily the goal. Like if I want to have a future in doing what I'm passionate about and discovering new things about bacterial life on our planet, then I need to be able to get in the classroom, speak with like-minded people with the same sort of goals. And the online credential would give you the same thing theoretically, but it's not going to give you any of the experience that that piece of paper like claims you have. Definitely. And I just absolutely have like fostered this love of learning and I enjoy learning. And part of the reason why I love research so much is because you expand a field that you're one super passionate about, but you're also engaging in something where you learn. And it excites me that I could make that into a career. And I haven't been allowed to be in the lab since COVID started and which is about six months now. And if I miss being in a lab this much, I I think that means I kind of belong in a lab. That being said, maybe if there was some hybrid where I could take the courses I was most passionate about and really get to focus on those and do that in person, I definitely would. But maybe for a few GEs, I, I would consider taking it online. But I would say most likely I would take more classes in person and than online, but it's not something I would completely throw out the window because I do think I have enough motivation to learn something even in the online format, but I definitely prefer the in-person format. Do you guys view Coursera as a separate ecosystem from the university ecosystem, or do you think that at a certain point they will be some form of combination or collaboration with one another, or they'll be perhaps um, even symbiotic in educating? Well, I know Coursera already has partnerships with different universities, so I think it already kind of has established itself as being symbiotic. And I definitely think it could be. Again, if Cal Poly was able to offer some like GEs through Coursera, it's something I would definitely consider. When my internship was canceled at the beginning of this summer, I actually went to Coursera and looked to take a few classes there just to sort of supplement my learning. I looked at taking perhaps like a coding class 
or some sort of like hard technical skills just because I feel like I really lack those in my scientific training. So the way I view Coursera, and this isn't necessarily how others view it or how it might be viewed in the future, is more supplemental to a university than within a university setting itself. I want to push back on that a little bit because I think that the undergirding premise of the idea that Coursera could perhaps assume the responsibility of or, you know, have the GEs offloaded to Coursera um, presumes that what the GEs are there to do is to get you to pass a certain requirement. Now, I teach GEs and my hope, although I'm sure that it doesn't always bear out, my hope is that what I do when I teach GEs is I expose students to a new area that might ultimately become a portal into an, a realm of understanding and knowledge that they might not have otherwise ever explored, that perhaps they will walk through that door as I did when I was a teeny tiny undergraduate back, as I said, when dinosaurs roamed the earth, and walk into a, a life direction even that they had never intended to walk into. Now, I, I know that that doesn't always happen with GEs, but I do think that the surprise brilliance of the GE system, planned brilliance even, of a liberal arts education that requires folks to take area studies and things that they don't intend to specialize in, is really that kind of ability to have some tactile knowledge about and to have some doors of curiosity and exploration open to things that they might not have otherwise wanted to or thought that they ever wanted to explore. Do you think that perhaps that kind of symbiosis loses something that might otherwise have flourished or no? Mm, I have two things to say on this is one, the GEs I've taken at Cal Poly, I've I think I've like loved half of them and sort of felt like I was just trying to complete something for the other half. But I mean, I took the technically human class thinking I was just fulfilling a credit and then ended up realizing that this is something I want to study a lot more. This is something I want to think about. I want to think about technology and ethics throughout the rest of my career because that class made me realize how important that is for me as a scientist as someone who's entering the technology industry. So GEs are certainly not just GEs. However, my second point, Cal Poly is hard because you come in, one, with your major already selected, and two, you take those major classes immediately and you are just so immersed in whatever your field of study is. And I think the university really pushes that you are a microbiology major. You are an animal science major. And so I believe it was Dr. Harsh who talked about it. Sometimes it can be hard to get out of that sphere. And I will say, I kind of, I agree with you, Emily, but I think for some people, like at least for me, I, even if I don't think I'm going to be really excited about the GE, I always try to go in with an open mind because who knows? This might become something I really, really like. And that's not always the case. And that's okay. At least I tried it. The challenge to that line of argument is that you never know which one it's going to be, right? And there's that surprise at the break where something hits you and compels you that you didn't necessarily know would do so. So I think we're coming to a consensus here that, that there might be a role for Coursera, but that the integrity and the coherence of an online under graduate uh, experience is so much more than content delivery and so much more than having access to purely information, that there is something very unique and special and irreducible and irreplaceable about the activity that happens on a campus that you would not want to lose. I want to just make sure I ask one question that's that's been on my mind, which is you know, uh, both of you, I believe, are going into your senior year this fall as we started here. And there's a very real possibility that you will graduate without ever taking another in-person quarter at Cal Poly. I will be. Yep. So how are you feeling about that? It's, 
I'm grad. So I'm graduating after next quarter. I'll graduate in the winter. And they just sent out that email about how winter is going to be pretty much the same as this quarter. And it's hard because when it was the like second to last week of last winter quarter, I remember I was just exhausted. It was about to be dead week. And I had that was my like toughest quarter I had taken at school. And all I wanted was for that quarter to be over and so I could go home for spring break. And now I think about it and it's just, it's definitely a bummer that that's sort of my last in-person experience at school. Like, of course, you'd want to have like happy memories of it and everything. But I think unless you had known that this pandemic was about to happen, most students ended that quarter just full of stress. I was so excited at the end of that quarter about the idea of, oh, I could take class online and I could be home with my family and this is going to be something new and exciting. And now I'm very much just at the point where I feel like I'd do anything just to be back in the classroom. I I definitely agree. Winter quarter, I don't know what it is about it, but it always seems to be the hardest quarter of the year. At least for me, it's always the worst quarter. It was a hard quarter for me too. And I, I definitely ended it feeling pretty exhausted. But the way I'm trying to approach things is I, I don't graduate in the winter. I graduated in spring. So who knows? Maybe we could be in person for that. But if not, I know that I want to keep learning and I know I would like to go to graduate school. My grand educational goal one day is to obtain my PhD and be in a career where I can further my field and do really what I feel like is really, really cool research. And so what I'm trying to do is look at this as this is not, you know, I'm not ending my career in learning in an online format. I have so many years ahead of me where I can continue to learn and to continue to grow and this is just a bump in the road is how I'm really trying to approach things. What would you want your professors to know about your experience as students learning online in their classes? Um, one, I would like them to know that my Wi-Fi is absolutely horrible. And so I drop out of meetings consistently. But other than that, I've had no bad experiences with any of my professors online. Everyone has been extremely understanding. All of my professors have just been very easygoing because I think they all understand we're all in this together. Like everyone is still trying to learn how to do this. I would just like to tell my professors that I really appreciate the effort that they're putting forward in making this difficult transition. I'm sure, I know it's hard for students. I am absolutely positive it's hard on the professors, especially those who have been teaching the same way for just such a long time. So I would just like to say that. I appreciate the effort they're still putting in for us and still trying to give their students the best learning opportunities possible. I think now more than ever, it's so clear that professors really care about their students. I mean, I felt like that was evident before, but especially now, and not just care about their students in terms of how they're learning. Obviously, that's a priority for them, but also want to care about our personal lives, making sure we're healthy and safe as you know, as safe as we can be. And so I just applaud professors right now for reaching out to students or getting very creative with different learning modalities. And it's so reassuring and nice to be at a university that has professors that care this much. And I'm very, very appreciative and grateful for that. So when we inevitably teach this moment in our collective history, in future semesters to future generations do you think that it should be taught online or in person I honestly I love thinking about what we're going to talk about when we talk about this in 10-15 years or even what I'm going to think about it when I'm older like it was am I going to remember me being nervous or scared or just I don't know I if you are listening in the future please teach this uh, in person. Teach everything in person. <laughs> Take it from someone who took class online. Teach about the pandemic in person. Erin, what do you think? I think they should do a week of class completely online just for that. <laughs> like yeah, just for like that learn by, by doing aspect. Like they can actually learn what it's like <laughs> to do 
in like do class online. Also, for the future future students learning this, the amount of dots you have to put together because this year's been absolutely crazy. I, I'm just glad I lived through it. Well, thank you, Erin. Thank you, Emily. I hope that one day we can record a podcast again, perhaps in person. Thank you so much. Thanks.